Stink on ice. Ah, that joke's a classic. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Classic English Literature Podcast, where rhyme gets its reason. That little joke is a hardy perennial. It does, of course, rely on the dual meanings of the word revolting. The messenger uses it as a verb, the present participle if you care, and you probably don't and indicates what the peasants are doing. The king, however, understands it as an adjective and confirms what the peasants are. Some take on this wordplay has been around for ages, from L. Frank Baum of Wizard of Oz fame, to cartoonist Walt Kelly, to comedian and filmmaker Mel Brooks, uh, from whom I nicked this version, more or less. Anyway, You should never explain jokes, and besides, I'm not interested in feeble puns today. Which is not to promise that there won't be a couple in what follows, Uh, see if you can spot them. But I am interested in revolting peasants, that is, peasants in rebellion. A couple of times now, I have made reference to the greatest popular insurrection in English history, the Peasants' Revolt of 1381 now sometimes called the Great Rising of 1381, both because it turns out that merchants, landowners, and artisans who were not of the peasant classes were also instrumental in the rebellion, and because the soy latte drinking crowd does not wish to offend repressed peoples who have been dead for nigh on 650 years. Dead peasants are still very touchy. So, I've referred to it, but I thought it might be nice to take a bit of a look at it, especially as regards the literature surrounding it. I've mentioned that Geoffrey Chaucer may well have been at the gates of London when the insurrectionists arrived. William Langland, while obviously very sympathetic to the complaints that sparked the action, nonetheless felt he had to revise his vision of Piers Plowman when he discovered that it had been one of the inspirational texts. You may remember the little episode about the mice belling the king's cat. That's probably one of the additions he made to distance himself from the violence and the disloyalty. And in our next full episode, the poet John Gower will cast a withering eye at the lower and middling sorts for their treachery. So, uh, what was it all about? Well, it's complicated, but here's a quick and dirty... It all started when a load of flea-infested rats decided to take a Mediterranean cruise, stopping off in Italy in 1348 for a bit of a holiday, you know, as you do. However, when asked by customs if they had anything to declare, they completely forgot to mention that they had packed the bubonic plague. By the end of that year, through all of Europe, even in stodgy England, the plague bacillus went viral. It became staggeringly popular, and everyone was doing it. Hashtag Bubo. Dear Sir, I write in a spirit of openness and allyship to share my outrage on behalf of others whose voices have been marginalized. So-called jokes about the plague are just not okay. 
I know they say that comedy equals tragedy plus time, but it's always too soon. You need to do better. In solidarity, contempt your ex Smugly. Dear Miss Smugly, you are quite right to take me up about the inappropriateness of my earlier remarks. They completely efface the human tragedy of the Black Death. I will indeed do better. In fact, if you could kindly send me the names and addresses of any 14th century plague victims you know to have suffered because of my insensitivity, I will happily and humbly send them a full letter of apology. Again, thank you for your most bracing reprimand. Sincerely, M. Anyway, by some counts, England lost nearly half its population, which meant that peasants now had some economic clout. They could demand wages and could move to an employer who would pay them. This kind of bargaining power exasperated the powers that bead, and Parliament passed the Statute of Laborers in 1351, freezing wages and limiting mobility, essentially restoring the feudal obligations of the pre-plague era. Additionally, the forever war with France further depressed royal revenues, so in 1377, 1379, and most precipitately 1380, Parliament imposed flat poll taxes, which placed a disproportionate share of the tax burden on the poor. The fact that the collection of these taxes were ruthlessly and often violently carried out certainly enraged the common people. As I say, quite touchy them. From May to July of 1381, those angry, hypersensitive plebs marched out of Essex and Kent and headed for London. They swore loyalty to the boy King Richard II, all of 14 at the time, but hurled invective and vituperation at the greedy church officials and aristocrats who gave the fresh-faced king lousy advice. I should say that there were risings all over the country, not just Kent and Essex, from York in the north to Somerset in the west. Along the way, Savoy Palace, the home of John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, was burned. Rebels broke into the Tower of London and relieved Simon Sudbury, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and his treasurer of their heads. Young Richard himself rode out to meet the rebels and their leader, Watt Tyler. Tyler demanded, in the name of the people... An end to serfdom and villainage, fixed rents, the disendowment of the church and a redistribution of its wealth, and punishment for all the traitors who produced and enforced the poll tax. The Lord Mayor of London, in a cunningly diplomatic riposte, stabbed Watt Tyler. Check, and if you will, mate. Rising over, all over, come on, get out! Haven't you all got homes to go to? I suspect that most students of literature or history will have heard perhaps the most famous bit of poetry to come out of the Great Rising. It's a little couplet by John Ball, the mad priest of Kent, who rallied the discontented thus. When Adam delved and Eve span, who was then the gentleman? It's a 14th century tweet, suitable for t-shirts, bumper stickers, novelty coffee mugs, Ball makes an argument for social leveling by citing the expulsion from paradise in the book of Genesis. 
Recall that, for eating of the tree of knowledge, Adam and Eve were cast out of Eden and forced to labor for their bread. So, back at the beginning of time, when Adam delved, that is, dug, farmed the land, and Eve span, that is, spun yarn for cloth, who was aristocratic? Where was the aristocracy? There were no upper classes to sponge off the work of the people. Ergo, there shouldn't be any now. John Ball had a bit of a gift for rhyme. Some of his letters survive, urging the people of Essex to finish what they had begun, kind of a pep talk, and they include what may loosely, I suppose, be called poems. Here's one. By the way, I am responsible for the modern English translations here, and I am a wildly incompetent translator. I do try to maintain both the style and the content of the original, but I'm sure I get much wrong. Please uh, do be gentle. Here we go. Now reigneth prida in prisa, covetisa is holden wisa, lechery without a shame, gluttony without a blame. And we regneth with reason, and sloth is taken in great season. God do bota for narrow is tima. Now reigns pride and price. Avarice is held to be wise. Lechery is without shame, gluttony without blame. Envy reigns as reasonable, and sloth is desirable. God make amends, for now is the time. And here's one from another letter. Johann the miller hath the grand smile, smile, smile. The king's son of heaven shall pay for all. Beware, or thee be woe, knoweth your friend from your foe. Haveth he now, and saith ho, and do well, and better, and flayeth sinna, and saketh peace, and hold you therein. And so biddeth Johann true a man, and all his fellows. John the Miller has been ground to nothing, but the King of Heaven's son will pay the ransom. Be wary or be sorry. Know your friend from your foe. Be content with what you have and do well and better and flee from sin and seek peace and dwell therein. So bids John Truman and his fellows. In the first poem, we can certainly hear and feel the cadences of a hortatory sermon. Those parallel phrases do much to build the tension and the dread. A brief catalog of the time's evils culminates in an almost apocalyptic warning. God will set all to rights. His kingdom is at hand. And the second poem feels very like a Twitter version of Piers Plowman. Here we have John Truman, whose mill sees little work and less profit, but fear not, for God will soon bring justice if only we remain vigilant, humble, and compassionate. Seek peace, he says, ironically, as the insurrection moves on to the capital, uh, Smithfield. And almost a direct callback to Langland's poem in the exhortation to, quote, do well and better. Incidentally, I don't know if you noticed it, but there's a curious syntactical feature in the second line. Ball writes, the king's son of heaven and not, as we would say it, the king of heaven's son. I've seen this construction in a number of medieval texts, often translated from Irish for some reason, but I can't find much of a linguistics explanation for it. 
It may be that the prepositional phrase of heaven was not considered part of the phrase head, king, and so you would not use the possessive or genitive marker there. Maybe we can think of of heaven as a sort of stranded apposition, modifying king without the commas we might use today. Seems like it might have some Scandinavian origin. I don't know. If you do, uh, please let me know on the back of a $20 bill. Now, for his trouble, Father Ball was hanged, drawn, and quartered, his head set on a London Bridge pike as a warning to all those who think people should be a bit nicer to each other. If only he had heeded the warning of this anonymous rhymester. Man beware and bear no fool. Thank upon the axe and off the stool. The axe was sharp, the stool was hard. The thirteenth year of Kunga Richard. Man, be wary and be no fool. Think upon the axe and on the stool. The axe was sharp and the stone was hard in the thirteenth year of our King Richard. This little quatrain interests me because it seems to speak of a wary and weary ambivalence. Clearly the speaker has a grim view of the world under the young Richard II, but you can feel the horror when he warns about trying to rectify that grimness. The language is so sparse, so economical. The axe is sharp. The stool, probably like the stocks, like a pillory, is hard. Drawing and quartering is the penalty for treason, about as gruesome, painful, and humiliating a death as I can imagine. But resign ourselves to injustice? It's a fearful choice indeed. Here's a final poem that similarly steers away from John Ball's sloganeering toward a more complex appraisal of the social crisis. It's called The Curse of Revolt, though surely that title is the product of much later editors. A curious poem, it's written in what's called macaronic verse, that is, verse in more than one language. And yes, the term macaronic comes from the same Italian root as macaroni. It means dumpling, you know, becomes pasta, which was regarded as vulgar peasant food. So originally, mixing two languages, especially Latin with some churlish vernacular, was seen as rather unrefined. And speaking of unrefined pasta, were we? I say it's time to restore the humble elbow to its rightful place as the prince of pastas, the noblest of noodles. We've so many choices and styles now. Yes, the the cavatappi and the farfalle and the orecchetti. They're all fine and delicious, and they're suitable for elegant cuisine. But I say, hurrah for the workmanlike elbow. Hearty, unpretentious, dependable. This poem mixes Middle English with Latin, and the rhyme pattern here is interesting too. The English lines end in what we still call, unbelievably, masculine rhymes. Single-syllable rhymes, all, small, fall, ran, man, and so on. Sturdy, unbreakable, masculine, elbow pasta. The Latin lines employ feminine rhymes, which are two or more syllables. We get validorum, cupidorum, dolorum, and malorum. The results of the two playing off each other is kind of a lilting, swaying feel to the poem. 
there's something lamentable about the rhythm and the rhyme, which fits well with a poem that mourns the violence of the rising, but understands and even sympathizes with the suffering that occasioned it. I'll give you the first stanza in the original languages, but then I'll read the whole poem in my rather rickety translation. Uh, I did get some help from the editors of the Longman Anthology who glossed the Latin. Here we go. The taxa hath tainted us all. Probet hoc moris tot validorum. The king thereof had a smaller. Fuit in manibus cupidorum. It had full hard hansel. Dons causum fina dolorum. Vengeance nadus most fall. Propter peccata malorum. The tax hath harmed us all. This death tests many of the mighty. The king thereof had small, it was in the hands of the greedy. It was a terribly bad omen, giving birth to an end to sorrow. Vengeance needs must fall because of the sins of the wicked. In Kent the troubles began, people attacking the potentates. In crowds those rascals ran, bearing their shameful weapons. Fools, they feared no man, neither the king nor the nobles. Churls became their captains unnaturally rising above their station. These churls laughed loudly, shouting in their loud voices. The bishop then they slew, and many gentle people. They threw down the manor houses, the best in the kingdom. Of dire deeds they did enough, for they had free reign. Jack Straw swaggered along with a captain's munificence, and said that all should bow down to them, us, the real Englishmen. Sturdily they shouted and beat the olive branch of pity, those who used to shirk to despise the plow and handle. Hales, that doughty knight, in whom all England shone, dolefully was he cut down when removed from peace by fools to where he could not fight nor make his prayer to Christ. The beautiful palace of Savoy was given over to the torch, but they did better than Arkin and threatened those with force Death would be the due debt if anyone looted its goods. Our king could have no rest, while others hid in caves. To ride he was by duty pressed, remembering his father's deeds. Jack Straw, down they cast him, at Smithfield with superior strength. God, as thou deem best, defend and govern our kingdom. The end here, like Ball's poem from the first letter, ends with an invocation to God, but here it's a petition, not a warning. The speaker admits that the taxation of the poor is unjust, yet does not blame the king, which is a good move if you want to remain intact, but blames his evil counselors. However, the speaker also calls the insurrectionists, quote, rascals with their shameful weapons. They are fools who blindly follow churls who have no right to command. He condemns the, well, actually fictional, Jack Straw's demagoguery and laments the destruction of Savoy Palace, though he keenly points out that no looting would be tolerated. We've got standards. Good King Richard behaved nobly to restore order. So, you know, there's a little taste of an event so influential on late medieval literature. All of the great writers of the day commented upon or responded to it, 
And it's great that we still have some texts from the lower and middling sorts to provide a rather complex, ground-up perspective. Thank you very much for listening to the Classic English Literature Podcast. Please feel free to drop me a line if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions. You can tag along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you would be so kind, please take a moment to rate the show on whatever platform you're listening. This increases the show's visibility and attracts more listeners, and it's really the best thing you can do to help the podcast grow. I really, really appreciate it. Of course, I also accept cash, so consider a donation if you happen to have a spare bit of change. Right, till next time, keep calm and carry on. 